0: Unexpected silence is really a powerful form of communication. Now you sit there and you expect me to say something, that's absolutely appropriate and right, but when I don't, I actually think it creates a tremendous amount of communication. It was three minutes If it felt long to you, trust me, (laughs) it felt like an hour for me. If we had a machine that could pick up the mental conversations that some of you had, uh, my guess is that uh, it would have just been exploding with activity. Some of you broke the silence with a whisper to someone near you. Some of you shot out a tweet or two, a text, Here's what I want us to consider. Whatever the conversation you had in your mind, whatever's going on, you know, those words, did it say more about you? Or did it say more about me? What I'm suggesting is that silence tells us more about ourselves, that, that, that tells us more about ourselves than it did the one who is not speaking. You're going, don't do that again. Don't, <laughs> don't do that again. I get the point.'t do, Empty the mind, empty the mind, empty the mind. No bad thoughts, no bad thoughts,. You know. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're in verses eight through 12. The silence of Christ in our text today is deafening. It speaks volumes about his enemies. tells us an incredible amount about his own heart and character. And if we get ourselves in the story, I think it reveals some pretty hard things about our own lives you know, whatever your frustration may be at my silence, can you imagine what goes on in the mind and the heart of a megalomaniac ruler, narcissistic, who's always gotten everything he ever wanted, who has the power of life, literally, to take life, give life, to give something to, just this, can you imagine when that person comes face to face with Christ in the text, and expects him to say some things but meets utter silence. Can you imagine what goes on in that brain, in that heart? A powerful man comes face to face with the silent lamb. To unredeemed eyes, it looks like the lamb loses, but not to your eyes and mine. In our study through Luke's gospel, we've entered... The hours and events of Good Friday each weekend. This is some review now. Each week from now, from several weeks back, all the way till Easter, please know that we are in Good Friday. And we are literally going through it a few minutes at a time every weekend. And I want to remind you, Bill taught back in chapter 22, verse 53. Jesus says, this day lies, quote, in the hour and power of darkness. So the further we go, just as these weeks go on until, you know, until Easter comes for us, as these weeks go on, just know it just gets darker and darker. And so even today, please allow that darkness, you know, it, it's going to set upon us. We don't need to wiggle out of it. I think we need to sit in it. This day that we're in actually began in the wee hours of the morning. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's illegally tried before the religious leaders. Jesus, you know, he says, yes, I am God, and and that was enough for them. He's he's blasphemous. He's claimed to be equal with God. Let's kill him. They've always wanted to do that. Now they have a reason, but they don't have the authority. So they go, we got to go to the person who has authority. That would be... Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler of Judea, he's got the power to kill this guy. Let's take him there. And so they take him to Pontius Pilate. This was what Michael covered last week. Michael last week, Bill the week before, reminded us that it meant absolutely nothing to Pontius Pilate that Jesus was king of the Jews. Big deal, do you do? he's king of Jews. You're Jews, it's your problem. It's your religious issue. And so they come to Pilate and say, well, yeah, he's king of the Jews, but he's also a social and political threat to Rome. Do you not see this? That's the charges they now, you know, bring to, to Pilate. Unfortunately for them, the religious leaders, Pilate says, I, I don't find any, I, don't, I find him not guilty. Now, for them, y- you see, their, their plans are starting to unravel. Because they want him dead. They want to, they want to get him killed and... Pontius Pilate's got authority, he's not killing him. So they watch it start to unravel. Pilate says, he's not guilty, I don't see any guilt in him. And so I want you to notice what happens. This is last week, but I want to reach back and grab it. Look at verse four, the very end of it. Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Notice what happens next. But they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. They very intentionally mentioned Galilee. This, for them, is like smud that they can throw on Jesus. You know, to say, this guy's an insurrectionist. He's a problem. I tried to think of an example on this that wouldn't offend anyone, but I, I couldn't, and so I tried to pick something as far away as possible in this way. If I were accusing someone of being, you, you know, I'm, I'm making some generalized statements here, but if someone, you know, I'm saying, look, this guy's dishonest. I, I just don't think he's, I don't think he's honest about what he's trying to do, and I think he's going to take advantage of it. I think he's trying to get something under the table the guy's from Vegas. Now, anyone from Las Vegas, you know, you're going, hey, Lloyd, what are you talking about? But you know, we all went, yeah, you know, it's, you, you remember in the 90s, remember what they tried? Family destination, didn't work. Why? Because that's not Vegas. When, when they say Galilee, see, they're, 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 they're impugning Jesus because Galilee in this day was known for producing Troublemakers. Remember what Nathan said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, which is in Galilee? No, nothing good comes out of there. So that's their intent. Unfortunately, Pilate hears it. He doesn't hear, oh my gosh, troublemakers in Galilee. He hears jurisdiction. Okay, whoa, 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 guys from Galilee. He's got to be tried where he committed the crime or where he's from. And so this is his opportunity to wash his hands of this religious mumbo jumbo for him. And so he says, I'm gonna send him to Herod. So that's where we pick up the story. We've got verses eight through 12 this morning. Luke's lens is really tight. I mean, it's like his lens is right down on here. And so these five verses are like this. It's like, they're like snapshots of this very you know, compressed event. It's like... Ch-ch-ch-ch. Five images. And rather than look at them in the whole as I normally would, I'm just this morning going to look at them one verse at a time. So we're just going to look down, look up, okay? Look at verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign, some attesting miracle Performed by him. Herod Antipas. His father is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod who commanded that all child, male, male children, two and under, need to be slaughtered in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Remember, because the Magi went off, he got duped by the Magi, and so he said, I'm going to take care of this king once and for all, and he killed all the babies, the slaughter of the innocents. That's, his, that's this guy's dad. Herod Antipas himself took a trip to Rome and fell in love with his half-brother's wife. Her name's Herodias, seduced her, brings her back, marries her. Herodias is not just his half-brother's wife, Herodias is his cousin. So, so he lives this adulterous and incestuous relationship here in Judea and Judea. He lives it under the watchful eye of John the Baptist. And you know the story, John the Baptist says, that's your brother's wife, that's wrong. And so it comes as no surprise, Michael reviewed it last week, he has, Herod, or has John the Baptist's head cut off when Herodias' daughter does a sensual dance for him at a banquet and he promises her anything, she says, I want John the Baptist's head, he cuts it off. We are not talking about a dysfunctional family. We're talking about evil. We're talking about traces, can, can we say, of demonic oppression, if not demonic bondage, if not demonic possession. At some, I mean, we're talking evil. Verse 9, he questioned him at some length, literally, with many words. But he, Jesus, answered him, nothing. Contrast. Wordy, 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 wordy. Jesus answered him, not a so. Based on verse 8 and what we know of Herod, can, can we say this, that, that his actions, it does not seem that all of these words and all of this questioning was related really to the trial. It, you know, he's, he's curious. I mean, Luke literally says it. He wants to see a miracle. I want to see some stuff. And it seems most probably those questions then were not judicial, if you will, right? Right? Are you the king of the Jews? Give me some proof that you you know, what's this crime you've committed? No, it's he wants to see something happen. If I can say it this way, he wanted to be entertained. Just hold that thought. Verse 10. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. You see, when he went from Pilate to Herod, a 10-minute walk to the Hasmonean Palace, just 10 minutes up the road, uh, the, the 70 religious leaders went with him. Please understand, they are not going to let this thing get away. Uh, they, they are going to make sure <laughs> that we get the verdict we've already declared and we get this man killed. So when this is taking place, see the 70 are, you know, Jesus is here, Pilate's, whatever, and the 70 are all around as well. And at this moment, they vehemently, what does that mean? Venomously, uh, with with, with deep-seated hatred and anger, you know, start bringing back the the, the charges that were there before. I want you to maybe, if you can picture, you know, what's going on. Why, Why do they... Why do they come unglued in this moment? And I want to suggest maybe, you know, it could have been like this, bear with me. This is Jesus right here, and I'm Pilate. Maybe like this. (laughs) Sweet, I get to see him. I've wanted to see him. I mean, ever since I heard about the stuff he did, I've always wanted to see him, and yes, I'll get him to him to do a trick. I'll get him to do a miracle for Jesus. He does not look like a king. Oh my gosh, Jesus. Okay. I've got some fingers held up behind my back. How many? <laughs> it is funny, isn't it? Okay. Well, okay, wait. I'm thinking of a number. Okay, he, you know, he raised people from the dead. I, I heard that. He, he raised someone from, okay, <laughs> this is crazy. Okay, make me levitate. <laughs> do it, do it. Oh gosh. Now, that's Pilate. Imagine the religious leaders are looking, watching this. I mean, they're coming unglued. See, because to Pilate, or, or to Herod, I'm sorry, this is Herod. To Herod, I mean, does he care? Does he care about this? Does he care about them? Oh no. no. He wants to be entertained. But for these leaders, their livelihood is on the line. Their power, all that they've known and want to keep, they got to get rid of this man. They got to get him killed. And bozo over there's wanting tricks. And so they vehemently. Herod, he, he's an insurrectionist. Look, if, if, if you let this go, you're in trouble. You'll lose at, see, they, they they bring those charges. I think it's a could have been a pretty charged atmosphere as it went up and down. Verse eleven. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate under pressure from the religious leaders. Okay, Herod finally decides, you know, he's not going to do a miracle for me. So they began, I, I, I think it's similar to verse 64 of chapter 22. Look back in your Bibles at verse 64 or 22. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who hit you? They, they treated him, as it says here, with contempt and mocking, yes, I would suggest, and continued to beat him. Herod probably had a servant go and get one of his robes. We don't know what color it was. You know, it could have been white, could have been. We don't know, but it would seem that if they're going to get a robe and put on him. It's going to be one of Herod's. Why? Because they want to mock him. Oh, you're royalty. <laughs> Here, put this on. You know, you don't look like a king, but you can have one of my robes. And I'll send you back. Verse twelve. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. It's just an interesting aside. I'm not sure what all to make of this. For before they had been enemies with each other, there's a number of places we can go and maybe say, yeah, this caused them to be enemies. We don't know for sure. What we know for sure is they were enemies. Why? Cuz Luke said they were. They hate each other. And now that they hate and though they hate each other, it seems they hate something else worse and I don't know, but I don't know that it's they hate Jesus. Who, who might they hate? Who might their common hatred be for? When you read, when we read on, you'll notice. I, you know, they, I don't know that they hate Jesus. I think it's the religious leaders. I mean, it's that's who woke that's who woke him up early in the morning. That's who's creating the problem. Well, they become this unholy friendship. There's a lot of energy in the passage, a lot of words spoken, um, question after question that goes unanswered, vehement accusations of the 70 leaders, contempt and mocking by Herod and the soldiers. But when we pay close attention to the passage, even as I, you know, kind of acted it out up here, if it were acted out on the stage, this guy does this, this, you know, I want to suggest that the spotlight, theatrically, so to speak, would have been on and remained on the one person that the whole thing revolves around. And that's Jesus. I think the light would have just been on Jesus. And Jesus, amidst it all, is standing silent. Doesn't respond, not a syllable. The church, historically, Luke doesn't say this. But the early church began to look at this event and they recognized in it the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, where Isaiah wrote of the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That's what just happened well, so what, as we say around here? What does it, so what does it mean to me? What, how does it apply? How would this apply to us? What does the story tell us? Michael gave a great, you know, those great questions we always ask. You know, what does this story tell us about God? What does the story tell us about Jesus? And what does it tell us about ourselves? And then what do we do with it? Let me give you two suggestions. There are many more, many places, directions we could go. Terms of application. I just want to give you two thoughts to consider. I want you to know this as well. Uh, we we will move right from this around the Lord's table. Okay, so this is this is moving us towards our time around the table, which I think does it beautifully. Let me suggest two things to consider. What what you and I may feel toward Herod toward the religious leaders is not what Jesus felt. I don't know what you felt. I mean. You know, I'm, just, I'm not very good dramatically, but I'm, I'm just trying to say, you know, I think this is what Pilate might have done, and I don't know what you think, you know, but maybe you're going, man, I am just going to go up there and punch the guy. I want to go up there and punch the Lord. I want to go tackle him. I want to take him down. I want to shut him up. You know, I don't know what you feel that. That's what I would feel. That's what I feel reading it. But what I'm suggesting is that Jesus didn't feel that at all. I, I, I don't think that Jesus stood in this place silent, you know, like when I was silent a minute ago, you know, my mind's going 90 to nothing or whatever. I, I don't know that Jesus stood in this place going, I am going to so torch you when my day comes. You are, go ahead, go ahead, do it. But you are, ooh, you know, that's, that's us. Well, Lloyd, how do you know Jesus wasn't thinking that? Well, let's go here first of all. First John four eight says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. At his essence, Jesus is God and He's love. Let's do this. Turn your eyes over to the in the passage and go over to verse 34. When Jesus is on the cross, notice what he says. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's on the cross. I want to suggest it's no less true right right here. Bam. Jesus, do this for me. That it's no less for Herod, for Pilate, for the religious leaders. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he kept his mouth. Why? Because he loved. Because he loved them. Because <laughs> he loves us. Dutch Protestant professor of the 1800s, Abraham van der Haven, wrote this. Uh, it's kind of that old English kind of wording maybe, but it gets the heart of this. Wrote this in 1855. He said, a miracle had Herod expected to see of our Lord. He really saw one, but he comprehended it not. For a miracle of the love which traverses all the depths of shame for us, which suffers itself to be arrayed in a white robe that we might appear before the throne of God in white garments of honor. A miracle of this love is Is it indeed that our Lord withholds the curse which otherwise might have fallen upon his mockers? I think Herod got his sign. And it's the most powerful sign that he could ever have gotten. It was the sign of the Son of God. Silent. In love. He could have spoken his way out of this. He could have called on the angels, right? Jesus could have done all that. He doesn't. He takes the beating. Why? Because he loves. We don't have to wait for the cross to go, oh, how he loves you and me. I'm just going, we can go all the way through the Gospels and let's surely stop here and go, oh, how he loves you and me in this moment. Well... I guess the question for you and I is, do we see it? Do we see the unconditional love of the Savior in this place? Do we believe it? Do we trust it? Do we rest in it? Let me offer a second thing to consider. And it would be this. What do you do when Jesus does not do what you expect him to do or want him to do? How do you respond when he does not perform for you? When he does not entertain you? You might be going, Lloyd, that's crass. That's not, I'm just gonna offer it this way. (laughs) There's a little bit of Herod in me for sure. And I don't like this, but when Jesus doesn't, do what I expect him to do or he does something that I think, there's no way you would do that or allow that, God, there's no, and my response, I'm gonna tell you something, my response is, is really not always good and at some level, I'm simply suggesting maybe, maybe there was something in me that, that wanted him to entertain me because I want him to do something for me, a certain way. I mean, I may not mock him with contempt but I, I, I can assure you of this, there are plenty of times in my life when my first response is what we sang earlier, that regardless of the hoop, he didn't jump through for me, that I, my response is not, not "Your God, Your Lord, to you be all glory, it's in your hand. That's not my response oftentimes. There's only one right response from any human being that stands before God. And I think if those who met God face-to-face from Genesis all the way to Revelation or any indication, I mean, the only response, regardless of what God does, is utter and abject prostration to a holy and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords. The only biblical response of, a hu- of humanity before God's unhindered worship, that's what it will be, But that's not always my response. So I'm just asking the question. I'm just saying, would you consider that maybe you walked in here today with a hoop? Maybe. Or maybe one's sitting at your feet right now and you know you wanna reach down and pick it up and go, I just need you to jump through it for me, Jesus. I don't know. I know that we're bent, can be bent. We're really good and prone at developing certain hoops that we subtly and over time begin to insist that he jumped through. And so maybe today... An application could be, I'm not gonna pick it up. I'm in fact, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna throw them all away. I'm gonna cut them up. No hoop, Jesus needs to jump through for me. Jesus' silence is palpable, silence. It screams of love and grace and kindness and forgiveness. And it shouts to us that Jesus didn't come to entertain. He didn't, you know, because again, He didn't come to perform for anyone. He came to die in our place. That's why he came to sacrifice himself to absorb the wrath of God we deserve to be buried and raised again and then clothe us when we trust him in his righteousness. And he did it. So if he never does anything else, is he not worthy of our unhindered praise? adoration, and exaltation. I suggest that he is. We've worshiped in song. We've worshiped in prayer and our giving. We have put ourselves under the word, under his word revealed. And now we're going to gather at the table and partake of the Lord's table. I'd like the ushers, if they would, to begin passing the bread and the cup I'm going to ask you to hold that. Hold the bread and the cup and we'll take it together. It's a wonderful picture to to go from the Word to the table. We're under the Word. We're around the table now with each other. And we're doing something that Jesus Christ commanded us to do. We take this bread, which is symbolic of his body... And we take this cup of, of grape juice, and symbolic of his blood, and we we ingest it, if I could say it that way, we, we take it in. And it's a great reminder that what we are seeking to do, even as we study this, you understand that we, we, we're, at, we're, we're taking this in, his word. And symbolically in this, we're reminded of his body broken and his blood shed, and we we take it in. Uh, we, we, go with, we believe this. If, if you've placed your faith in Christ and you're, you're get visiting, please, we invite you to the table with us. If you have not, um, then I, I would simply say to you, I, I hope you, as you watch us partake in this, I'd want you to know it's something that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ commanded those who follow him to do and to do regularly. And we do take it very seriously. It really does mean something. In it, as he said, we actually proclaim, and so I hope if you don't know Christ, you'd see us proclaim that we believe Jesus was a real man who walked this planet and was sinless and chose to give his life on our behalf and shed his blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're proclaiming that as we take this. And we're also proclaiming that the one who came historically is gonna come again one day and set all things right. So hold that cup and hold the bread, if you would, please, and we're gonna do something a little different when we take it together in a moment. Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this story. So these, fi- these five snapshots we've looked at, these five verses, he's the only gospel writer that includes Jesus before Herod. If you go all the way back to our beginning, the beginning of our study of Luke's gospel, you remember Luke said, at the very beginning, he said, I'm going to write this book in order that you may know some things for sure. You know, we keep coming to that. You got to know this for sure. So what, what we know then is that what Luke includes as the Spirit inspires him to write, it's stuff that, you know, Luke believes we need to know for sure <laughs> about this is who Jesus is and what he did. And so if we, if we use that as our starting point and, and, and say, you know, there's nothing accidental in any, any part of the Bible and certainly not in Luke's gospel, why did he include this? I mean, no one else did. It doesn't make their Gospels incomplete. But why did Luke include this? (laughs) You don't need to turn there. Bill's actually gonna cover this next week. But at the end of verse 14 in this very chapter, Jesus is back with Pilate. That's where we'll be next week. And Pilate says this, I have found no guilt in this man. So so here we go again. Before, Pilate said, not guilty. And then he gets sent to Herod. Now he's back with Pilate. And Pilate says, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges that you make. And then in verse 15 of this very chapter, he goes on, he says, no, nor has Herod. For he sent him back to me. What do we need to know for sure, Luke? Why this picture? Why this story with Herod? Well, could it be this? Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Jesus fulfills every minute detail of the law. Jesus is not going to take a shortcut (laughs) not going to bypass anything the law said someone's going to die it must be on the basis of two or three witnesses not one and maybe it's this for this reason that Luke includes this these moments with Herod where Herod can take his best shot where the religious leaders can vehemently bring the charges again And where we can know, while Herod, I I think, is a sick man, um, it's not that he's stupid or incapable of reason. And Herod himself says, not guilty. Now we have two witnesses. He's not guilty. The Deuteronomy passage says on the basis of Two, someone's going to be killed. (laughs) Well, surely on the basis of two, someone who who they're trying to kill shouldn't be killed because there's two witnesses. What does it tell us? That the cup you hold, symbolic of the blood of Jesus, is innocent blood. You can know that for sure. So that when we go ahead and Jesus is on the cross, we can know for sure he can't be dying for himself because he doesn't deserve death. The laws of the universe aren't suddenly suspended, and no, we're going to kill an. You know, God's going to kill an. No, sin deserves death. Jesus is killed but two witnesses said he's innocent. (laughs) I know. Well, that means he died for someone else, which is exactly what the gospel says, that he died for you. He died for me. We can know that for sure. even as we celebrate and partake of this Lord's table. I'm waiting for them to finish. I'm not just standing silent. Let's stand together. Would you do that? We've, we're, we're a little over. You know, we'll, if we get the word to the Learning Center, we've gone a little late. Let's, we're already late. We're late. <laughs> we'll finish this how we want to do this. I'd like you to do something before you take the bread and the cup. I want you to turn to someone near you and simply say, Christ remains silent for me. Would you do that? And Lord Jesus, you did remain silent for me. That you might take my place. Suffer and die for me. We remember that in this cup and the bread. And we proclaim together as a community of faith, you're coming back. And we give thanks. Take and eat the bread and drink the cup, please. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hid their face, hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are dismissed.